0: Everyone, Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University of Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas.
1: And, and I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania.
0: And if you are new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we watch them from our perspective as ministers, as theologians, as people who just love movies. Then we gather around for conversation. This week, our guest, Margaret Amer, has asked us to go watch Moana, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask her what this movie has to do with life and ministry and theology and in the world.
1: In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas about what you might do with Moana for this coming Lectionary Sunday, which will be April 1st, Easter Sunday. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following.
0: But before we get too far, I want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Margaret Amer is the First Presbyterian Church Shreveport D. Thomason Professor of New Testament Studies at Austin Theological Seminary. She is just down the street from me. She's also the author of a number of books, including her most recent, Islanders, Islands, and the Bible. And She's active in my denomination, the PCOSA, serving on many—let me say that one more time—she's also active in the PCOSA, serving broadly on many committees and task forces. Margaret, thanks so much for being here.
2: Uh, it's great to be here, Matt. Glad you invited me.
0: So today we're talking about Moana, which is the 2016 Disney animated production. It's actually not Pixar, but it feels very Pixar-ish at many points along the way. This is the story of a young girl of the Polynesian Islands, Moana, who has to defy her family and leave her home island in order to try to set the world aright, to return the mystical heart of the goddess Tafiti to its rightful owner. Without Tafiti's heart, which has been missing for a thousand years, the world has come under the power of Tikka, a, po- a powerful volcanic demon, and we may talk about the relationship between these two gods as we go along, spoiler alert. And the darkness that comes from Taka has finally threatened the shores of Moana's home island. So she sets off into the ocean, which has its own agency in this movie and in many ways chooses Moana for the job. Moana sets off with a a dim-wooded chicken. She discovers the boastful demigod Maui, and she sings a bunch of Lin-Manuel Miranda music. It's all totally charming. But you tell me, Margaret, you picked this one. Why Moana? How does this movie help us think about our theological story or our church story?
2: Well, first of all, I chose Moana because I have a four-and-a-half-year-old, and that's the level of movie I'm watching these days.
0: Right. Um, totally so, appreciated.
2: <laughs> so I'm I'm doing a lot of, of kids' movies, um, and Moana is one of our favorite kids' movies for lots of reasons. Um, how it helps us think about our theological story well, the first question that I think it raises is questions of vocation and call. What does it mean to be called or chosen to do a particular task, to step out in faith, literally to walk on water? Um So there's a wonderful sense of vocation. And vocation, in this case, not by a male figure, but by a female figure. The strongest figures in this movie are arguably Moana, Tyler, her grandmother, and Tikka, Tefiti. So it's, it's, it's this wonderful sense of call, um, call to do and to be who you are called to be. Even when the community might not always support that.
0: What do you think, Adam? Is that, was that the the kind of vocational theme that resonated the most for you?
1: Yeah, it does. Uh there are a couple of different moments in the movie where, where Moana is receiving this call and she's just beginning to realize that she is. And I, and I found those particular parts of the movie quite powerful. Um, the, the moment where her grandmother is able to see in her something, um, that Moana has felt for a long time, but, um, but hasn't really ever had the courage or um, the, um, the 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 vocabulary to articulate. And it, it reminds me of this 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 story that I that a friend of mine told me about uh, about their daughter and how my friend received a call from a, a grandfather saying, you know, I think that your daughter should be a minister. And my friend was like, oh, have you told her that? And he's and the grandfather said, no, I haven't. And so my friend said, why don't you call her? About 10 minutes later, the daughter called um, her father. And the daughter said, look, grandpa just told me something. Um, he said, I should be a minister. And the father said, well, what do you think about that? And she said, I think I've been waiting my whole life for someone to tell me that. <laughs> um, and I I couldn't help but see in the grandmother character the the role of uh, the ancestors and the wise ones in helping us understand our call, but also the type of courage that's necessary in order to follow the call. Right. I was I was very struck about how um, Moana doesn't know how to sail. I mean, she sort of does. She knows how to sail in the lagoon where everybody um, fishes, but she doesn't know how to sail outside the reef. She doesn't know how to navigate by the stars. She doesn't know how to do all of the stuff that you need to do in order to be an explorer. And yet she sets off anyway. And she sort of learns all along the way, which to me was, I I think, a really important part of what it means to follow that call, which is you're going to end up in a place where you really don't know what you're doing. And part of the call is having the courage to go out there and do it and sort of learn on the job.
0: And I think there's this really interesting... I mean, if what if you wanted to come at it from a kind of from a Christian theology, there's the, the agency of water in this movie is really interesting to me, and the way in which the ocean is held as a character unto itself, and it's like it's a character that calls her. I mean, it's the ocean, it's the water that comes and literally grabs her, that moves for her, that claims her, that that puts her back on the boat at multiple times. I mean, the, right. the and it's it's not clear whether or not the water has a specific relationship to, to the other gods in the film, or whether it is just exerting its own activity ba- on, on behalf of, of creation. But there's this beautiful kind of the water that calls us um, baptism sermon that I feel like this, this movie kind of cues up ready to go.
2: Yeah, I think you're right.
0: Uh, what other kinds of theological themes came out? W- one of the ones for me was was the the kind of sense of of the power of community. Uh, yeah. I, I think the first half hour of this movie is the is the is the strongest part of it. Um, I think there's a little bit of filler in the middle um, that I'm not entirely sure how I feel about. But it, the the way in which the island is presented, um, the the way in which the the island is is both Nurturing and loving to itself and also kind of willfully ignorant of the world around it Um, And and the terror that is presented when she wants to leave um, And 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 seek the world beyond even though the world beyond is already kind of finding its way to them through the power of this darkness that is That is ruining the 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 crops and is ruining the fish Um, I, I I first watched this movie when I was um, still pastoring in a in a small town in Virginia, and and I had felt a lot of resonance with that opening bit, of of in in a context where it it, it felt like um that the world was very much coming to our town, and our town was not always necessarily wanting to leave or to engage with it. And I wonder whether that is a a consistent theme that we find in congregations or in congregational life. I wonder whether that had any traction for you
2: i wasn't I really hadn't thought much about the community. I noticed that that you had been thinking about that some, but I hadn't really thought much about the community except uh my my, my 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 felt I found myself much more key to the grandmother than to the community around it, but then I didn't ever really grow up in a small town, so I've always kind of been the one out moving out from outside moving out from the small community outward um but there seems to be a set of themes around that in Disney films, right? So there's a theme of that in in Coco. There's a theme of that even in Black Panther that just came out with Wakanda being willfully ignorant. There's a sense of um, isolationism being both incredibly rich and also being incredibly dangerous at the same time and and we see this in the Christian story in the Acts stories right where you have you have the, the community in acts goes from being this small kind of nuclear community and expanding out more and more and more but with each expansion it comes at at because of a crisis because of a need um the hellenistic widows complain so they need to expand out um there is a A persecution and so the disciples are scattered and so the mission expands out. So something about crisis forces that community out into the world, out into the ocean. It's it's different on an island though because being forced out means being forced into the water, really being forced into a completely different medium. In a way that is different like if you're just crossing a land bridge.
0: And it forces them to reclaim some previous identity. I mean, maybe there's some right. there's some dovetailing with our previous conversation about vocation, it, it forces them to reclaim who they were as as explorers. They have all the ships that have been buried under the island and that they have to be dug out and and, and, and dusted off and reused um in order to kind of fully to fully engage this crisis they have to go back to who they were before that's right
1: yeah and in, in in addition to that i think this this movie is also trading on themes of 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 home leaving and homecoming uh and the the youthful desire to see something new i mean i think it's worth noting that moana uh tries to leave the island before she knows that there's a real problem before she actually gets the heart of the sea it's when she's like finally crashed crashes and almost dies outside the reef and comes back that her grandmother reiterates her call but she's been feeling this sort of wanderlust this like desire to go out and see something be beyond um for for quite a long time and that's a i think that's a very common theme in so much of the western canon which is you know the hero has to leave home i mean it's one of the oldest stories in the world which is like i the hero gets out of bed and goes and leaves home um in order to have some measure of homecoming where you come back and having left you have some greater appreciation or sense of home you 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 understand the um the place better for having left and and I really like that theme in this, in this movie. Um, as I was watching it, I was, I mean, with all of the water, with all the walking on the water, I was reminded of Peter walking on the water and this crazy story where like Peter gets out of a boat, which is the last thing a sailor should do. There's, right. you you don't get out of boats, especially in the middle of a storm. Right. And, and yet he, he does. And he, there is this sort of miraculous moment um, where he gets to walk on water and gets to sense Jesus, but then he sinks because, you know, he's made of mass and gravity is going to pull him down. And that's just what humans do. And Jesus pulls him up. And I think it's important to then recognize that Jesus puts him back in the boat, the, the very place that he left to begin with, that Peter gets to get out of the boat, but Eventually, he gets to get back in the boat. And my hope is that Peter has a greater sense of why the boat is so valuable, having left the boat. Sure. And I think that something is happening in that in this movie with that, too, where it's Moana's journey. And she meets these crazy people along the way. And, yes, she does engage in this sort of amazing act of uh, restoration and redemption. Uh, but at the same time, it's also an inward journey that she's taking that allows her to return home and become the chief of the island.
2: Right. There, there is a part of the movie, I think, though, that can get overlooked when we spend so much time on the village, and that's the transformation of Maui. Mm-hmm. See, the, the, the character Maui is, to my mind, one of the most interesting characters in this movie because he's not entirely the bad guy and he's not entirely the good guy. He is more complicated. In fact, with the exception of Tamatoa and that very odd scene with the coconuts, Um, (laughs) but with the exception of those two, there's no real bad guy in this movie. Maui is a very interesting and complicated character to me because here is a very large, very macho, a strong man whose entire identity is formed around pleasing humans formed around being the best human he can human pleaser he can be so that he wants humans to say you're welcome but what's below that what lies below that is rejection
0: yeah there's some kind of old miltonian lucifer in that character the the one who um has gone for something that he wasn't allowed to go for and then gets thrown out of heaven or thrown out of the relationship that he wanted to be in um it's it's much more charismatic and i think much more sympathetic but that the the way in which milton is kind of sympathetic to and kind of in love with lucifer reminded me a lot of of the way in which um maui shows up in this movie
2: yeah, I, I think that's true, but I think there's also the piece that precedes the 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 act the Lucifer Act, which is Maui's abandonment by his parents.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes, yes, yes.
2: Maui is in many ways Moana's brother. Because they've both been adopted by the sea.
1: Interesting. And and I think the movie does that really subtly, right? Like it's beautifully subtly. Uh, just the tattoo on his back is it, it, yeah. it's, it's the centerpiece of the tattoo on his back, um, which is this silhouette of uh, of abandonment and um, and he doesn't want to talk about it, and you can see that it's a source of great shame and, and, um, and pain, and they do a great job of of, of allowing that to both compel him to uh, to try and please humans and also um abandon them when it suits them right and um and i yeah i, I was you know so many of, of these disney movies have this sort of manichaean view of of the world which is you know the light has to come in and expel the darkness it has to um that there are these two forces and i i love this idea that you, that you mentioned margaret that that there isn't a, there aren't really bad guys here right there is no Manichae and there is no like a force of good and a force of evil and they're warring and someone has to win in order for evil or for for peace to be um pervade in in the land um this movie turns it on its head so that you know what you think is the force of darkness is actually the force of 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 life That's and right. and you and it turns that in a and I think a quite beautiful way uh That turns the typical conventions of a Disney movie on its head.
2: Yes. Moana the postulant becomes Moana the pastor because just as Maui has to teach her to sail, to become a wayfinder, she then has to teach Maui that he is who he is, that he is Maui without his hook. Just as her grandmother had to teach her that she is who she is, that she is the one the ocean has called, that she is one of the voyagers who has sailed across the world. And that's why she feels this call so deep in her heart. So she actually becomes, in some ways, Maui's pastor. Maui does not come back to save her if she does not do that work with him.
0: hmm so let's move on a little bit. Um, before we do, I just want to say that how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian century. I want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. If you go back in their archive, you can find Fred Craddock writing around the ending of Mark in this lovely homespun way, this Mark 16, 1-8 that preachers will look at for this Easter Sunday. It's great, lovely, late Craddock writing on which he is asking, is this, frankly, any way to run a resurrection? as Mark falls off a cliff at the end, and I I commend that to you. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit org slash podcast offer. All right, Margaret and Adam, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So looking at the lectionary passages for Easter Sunday, we have this beautiful passage from Isaiah about God's beautiful mountaintop banquet. We have Peter's proclamation in the book of Acts. Preachers also have a decision to make. We have two resurrection accounts, one from John's Gospel where Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener, and the other from the end of Mark where we don't get to meet the resurrected Christ and the text ends abruptly. Margaret, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out as particularly interesting or illuminating given the themes of Moana?
2: Well, one of the things that I was thinking about was Mark's ending, which I love, For They Were Afraid. Um, and it reminds me of the beginning of the Moana movie, Um when Moana's mother tells her that her father had tried to go out into, had tried to cross the reef, and lost a friend in the process, and that the one rule on that island was, you don't cross the reef. And so the story of the boats were hidden, because they were afraid. But the resurrection doesn't happen until the story is told. And so there's this wonderful connection of what happens when we stop being afraid. When, when Moana is about to go up to the top of the mountain, put her stone on, and she, st- she says to her grandmother, you know, why aren't you stopping me? Is, you, is there something you want to tell me? And her grandmother says, is there something you want to hear? It's that, it's that moment of, okay, they were afraid. They stopped talking. Is there something you want to hear? I love that 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 pregnant pause at Mark that's inviting us to keep saying so what happened?
1: yeah, I love that. I love that there's this that to to hear that Mark's ending as a way to solicit a response from everyone and it and it reminds me of also of the grandmother telling the story at the very beginning of the movie, too, right, right. and all of these little kids are just are are terrified of what's going on. Um, and, and like the, 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 the sheet, the sheets unroll and, and show all of these children, like the terrible things that are out there. Um, and yet it's those terrible things, uh, that call us out into the world to try and figure out what our mission is or what our vocation is, or how do we, how do we meet the needs of this particular world, given these realities?
2: Right. And. And then the Peter speech in Acts, and Acts 10 is arguably one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. Um, The Peter speech in Acts about God showing no partiality and everyone do- that is doing right is acceptable to God. That speaks to Moana and to Maui. That you don't have to be perfect, that you don't have to have met all of the requirements that somebody else thinks you need to have met. That you are called because God called you. And that that some of this is really not in your control. You are Maui because you are Maui. You are Moana because this is who you are.
0: There's a theme in this movie of things not staying buried. Right. Right. Uh, and and some of them are very concrete. You know, we keep throwing things into the ocean, and the ocean keeps spitting them back up. Or we right. go and find them. Uh, you know, the jewels and the fish hooks. The, the the ships underneath the the island come out eventually. Things things come to the surface, literally. And and one of the things that comes to the surface is also identity, as I think you're pointing out that that what people who people are and who they are called to be eventually eventually it surfaces. And there's um, there's this I think there's a kind of broadly metaphorical Easter piece in there, too, of just the things that don't stay down and the things that don't stay buried uh, that 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 a preacher could could kind of pull on Uh, one of the obviously not an Easter text. But one of the places I kept going with this was the was the Deuteronomy remembrance that that for the people who are supposed to to do the liturgy of saying that my ancestor was a wandering aramean right this constant injunction to israel to remember their their kind of wandering and migrant and immigrant roots uh, that the people on this island have have stopped doing that and right. the, and and the the call on them to to remember who they are is 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 part of surfacing that that sense of identity Adam, what about for you? What what other kind of preaching thoughts struck you as you looked at these texts in this movie?
1: So i i was I was intrigued by the uh, by the passage in Isaiah, just because i'm 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 very interested in the ways in which uh, geography informs our imagination, and our theologies have these these they have their own shapes, and those shapes. At least in my experience, tend to correspond with geographies that are very central to our own identities. And so the banquet in Isaiah takes place on this mountain. And, you know, in the ancient Near East, mountains matter. Uh, they loom large. God is up, uh, and amazing things happen on the top of mountains. Uh, these aren't typically the people writing uh, a lot of scripture, aren't seafaring folk. They're not island folk. They're not really even plain folk, like who live on a plain somewhere. Um and if they have a conception of the water, it's it's very different than this sacred vision that comes out in Moana, where the water has some agency, it has its own uh activity. You know, in, in scripture, water is seen as this sort of ancient chaos, and you you go there at your own risk. Uh so I'm I'm trying to, at least in my own mind. Begin to think about um, what happens uh, when we take seriously the landscapes of our lives and, uh, and they inform our theologies. And with respect to the Passion um, and Easter, to be a Christian is to be formed by these landscapes of a people long ago. You know, Jesus is, is crucified on a hill. I think Jerusalem itself you know, the, to understand the geography of that area gives you so much deep insight into the story itself, but also the theology that comes from the story. And so um, I'm I'm intrigued by the Isaiah passage. I'm not sure if it's a great uh, Easter Sunday passage, um, but I think it's time for us. To, I mean, the ending of Moana, I think has some really resonant Easter themes, especially with the um, the ways in which we believe this thing is to be our enemy, is actually the source of, of, of life, which, is, um, which has been a central theme within Lent, especially in year B, is this Jesus is constantly talking about death. Death is not the enemy in the end. It's this portal to the way of life. And I was interested to, to hear from you all how you saw the ending with this Te Ka and Tefiti um, transformation playing in the Easter season.
2: So looking at the Isaiah passage, it's interesting that these are the things that God will do on this mountain. On this mountain, God will make a feast. God will destroy the shroud that is cast all over people, wipe away the tears from all faces, right? So, in the restoration of the heart, Moana restores the mountain, restores creation. Mm
0: -hmm. It is
2: a reversal of the curse. Right? And because creation is restored, the shroud is literally lifted. I mean, cinemographically, the flowers that have curled up and died become flowers again. So there's this wonderful sense that on this mountain, on the mountain of Tefiti restored is this. This feast is this. This gener- generativity, this created, this creation that's about to go forth into the world and invite people back into the sea. Invite people. The, the creation doesn't go out to keep you on the island, but the but the, the gift of the creation, the gift of the restoration, goes out to invite you off the island.
1: Yeah, because I mean, other... you can be confident because there's life on other places, right? Right. Leaving the island doesn't mean certain death. It means that if you explore long enough, you're, you'll you'll find more life.
2: Right. And 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 the other mountain at the end of the of the story is uh, Motunui. When Moana goes up to Motunui to do the work of chief and put and raise the mountain higher. Right. But what she does in raising the mountain higher is put on a seashell.
0: Yeah, I love that image.
2: Which is a testimony to to what she has learned and to where she has been and to who they are as a people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, here I raise my Ebenezer. Right. Matt, how about you? As you as you looked at the end of the movie, how was it how was it playing with you with respect to Easter?
0: Well, I'm, I'm just thinking about this moment. I mean, I think this is really a powerful moment where Moana kind of realizes, she has this, her epiphany and realizes that Takah is, is Te And she sees the, the place on the chest where the, the heart is supposed to go. And she calls the water to part. I mean, to find another <laughs> biblical image. And she t- literally tells the ocean to make a path so that this kind of volcanic monster can can come forward and get to her so that she can put the heart back in its place there's this um this kind of beautiful way in which moana um is is embracing the figure of death there uh that i think could play a bit with how we talk about holy weekend and it's not the it's not the embrace of death in the sense of she Moana seeks her own death or is, is is um is is going in with kind of self-sacrificial ideations, but it's it's almost this like this like empathetic embrace of the figure that is violent and evil, uh that that allows for for healing and reconciliation and restoration. Right. Uh, and that, that I think is is really powerful. She's able to see even in destruction, this, this kind of sympathetic core. Uh, and I, and I wonder if if that thematically couldn't be lifted out in some Easter tide ways.
1: Yeah, this, this idea of, of redemption is also, or a part of redemption is, is returning. Um, it's, it's putting things back in their right place. Um, and I, I found that that to be a, a an important part of this this moment at the end, which is um for for life to continue, there is a sort of order of things um that is conducive to life and and Christ is, is in the process of putting that stuff back uh and one of those things I think is like respecting and tending becomes the way to peace, which you know, leads you to the John passage, which is, it seems altogether fitting that Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener. Yeah. Uh, considering the, the ways in which the gardener is the one who's sort of tilling and creating a, a, the ground for life. Um, you know, it's a, it's played as a sort of throwaway line in a lot of, uh, in a lot of preaching on Easter Sunday. But I think it, I think that there's something more there about, you know, what is a gardener doing? Especially in light of um christ's uh Christ's admonition that the week before the the uh the one that we had this last Sunday that he says you know if uh you know unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it can't bear new fruit and then the first thing that Mary sees as she arrives is she sees the resurrected Christ as a gardener. I think that there's something interesting to play with there, especially in light of Moana's understanding of of like how Tefiti, once the heart is returned, is the creator of the sort of these flowers and this life and maybe a garden.
2: Yeah, I think the the, the question of Rabunai, when Mary looks at the gardener and does not see Jesus, and then he speaks to her and she all of a sudden says, Oh, that's what you that's who you are. There's that moment of recognition. Yeah. You know, where oh yeah, that that's why but she has to realize that the tomb is empty first, right? So mm-hmm. so Moana gets to the top of what she thinks is going to be Tafiti and Tafiti is gone. And it's this wonderful moment where there's this woman-shaped silhouette where Tafiti is supposed to be. And she is not there.
0: And I think there's a there's a tie back here to some of what you were saying about the movie at the beginning of our conversation, Margaret, which is that it, it hinges on these really powerful women characters. It hinges on Moana, it hinges on her grandmother, it hinges on Tafiti as the kind of the most powerful characters in this universe. Um, and and there's a there's kind of a baseline in Mark and John's take on the resurrection. Both both of them hinge on the the the, the credibility and the storytelling power and the gospel telling power of of the women who find this tomb. Uh, that none of this works unless we um, put put confidence and put believability and credibility in in these women. Uh, and I, I so I, I do think there's some. There's some dovetailing there, and, and potentially some some homiletical work to be done there as well.
2: Well, especially at the very beginning of the movie, when when Tala is telling all of those stories, <coughs> to the and the children all fall out in terror, except for Moana,
0: <laughs> who is
2: all excited.
0: Right. Absolutely.
2: And the father is trying to call calm them down, and he says, "There are no monsters. There are no monsters. There are no monsters." And as Moana is escaping, you hear Tallis say, the stories are true. Someone mm. will have to go beyond the reef. Mm. So if we don't, what happens when we don't believe the stories of the women?
0: That's beautiful. I think that's a really good way to wrap this up. Um, Margaret, thank you so much for being here and for taking the time to talk with us and chat with us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Margaret. You're welcome. now it's time for our last segment. This is called postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Adam hit me with it. What's your postlude for the week? So
1: when I teach preaching, I get a lot of questions about preaching that are along the lines of who do you think is a great preacher? Who's the best preacher ever? Uh, And I have to think, okay, so to answer this question, we have to survey the whole scope of human or of Christian history and it's really long and there are a lot of preachers there and making a decision is basically stupid uh but John Chrysostom is in the top 3 that's that is for sure that i know and i'm confident about and one of the reasons i'm so confident about it is uh because he he preached a paschal sermon in the late 4th century that every year the Orthodox Church still recites. Mm. So if you think you're a good preacher and uh, you preach a sermon and 1700 years later, people are still repeating your sermon every Easter, that's a pretty good indication that you're a good preacher. By, Mm. By any metric, I think that that's pretty amazing. And so as people are beginning to try and figure out what to preach for Easter, it's one of those sermons that is so difficult because you find yourself repeating yourself over and over every year. Um, I commend uh, Christom's famous Easter sermon. You can look it up on- online, but it's, it's often called the Paschal Homily of John Christom. Um, and let me just give you a, a, little, a little taste of, of part of it. He says, right. if anyone has labored from the first hour, let them res- today receive the just reward. If anyone has come at the third hour with Thanksgiving, let them feast. If anyone has arrived at the sixth hour, let them have no misgivings, for they shall suffer no loss. If anyone has delayed until the ninth hour, let them draw near without hesitation. If anyone has arrived even at the eleventh hour, let them not fear on account of tardiness, for the master is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him that comes at the eleventh hour, just as to him who has labored from the first. He has mercy upon the last and cares for the first. To the one he gives and to the other, he is gracious. He both honors the work and praises the intention. So enter all of you therefore into the joy of our Lord and whether first or last receive your reward. It is, it's a it's a wonderfully celebratory sermon and it's one that I, I love because it catches the tone of Easter as a celebration, as, a, a, an opportunity for excess and abundance that's really, really great. So if you're finding yourself in an Easter uh, sermon writing rut, go and check out John Chrysostom's Paschal Homily, and hopefully it'll provide a little bit of inspiration. That's what I got, Matt.
0: How about you? Well, Adam, I think I think for years from now, people are going to be reciting your Easter sermon about Milana <laughs> I feel it in my bones.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure it's that good. <laughs> it could be. I mean... I'll let the Holy Spirit decide. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh
0: well, sometimes I just use this segment to talk about whatever has shown up in my Netflix algorithm and this is one of those days. Um uh, so I'm I'm kind of hate watching this show on Netflix called uh The World's Most Extraordinary Homes and I <laughs> and I, I want to share it with you all. It's uh,
1: such a Netflix I'm, Matt, can I make
0: a confession? Yeah.
1: Uh this showed up in my Netflix queue on the same time. Yeah. I've and been- I haven't watched it.
0: I'm pretty, sure so queues, I'm pretty sure our Netflix cues. I'm pretty sure our Netflix cues are probably not that different. Uh so this is like a it's actually a BBC show. I'm not sure how Netflix can figure out how to call these things Netflix originals when they just buy them from the BBC, but that's a separate conversation. They've got an architect named Pierce Taylor and an actress named Caroline Quentin who go around the world marveling at these kind of remarkably distinctive contemporary homes. They're often built in really extraordinary places like mountain edges and forest canopies and whatnot. I, I'm kind of hate watching this because I think it might be the widest television I've seen in a long time. <laughs> and, I, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh because its definition of world is almost entirely defined by the limits of the former British Empire. So there are four episodes with 16 homes and not a single one of them is on the continents of Asia, Africa or South America. Of course, it's pretty close to being kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous, and you have to set all that stuff aside, too. So all of that is included in the hate part of the hate watching. But the thing I like about this show, and I think this is something that would dovetail with what you were talking about before, is the is the, one of the values that they hold up architecturally is sensitivity to place and landscape and geography. Uh, there's a beauty in the way in which some of these homes are so crafted into the context of the land or the community in which they find themselves, like with these native New Zealand trees literally enveloping the home on all sides, or or a house that is built into the curvature and the folds of a mountain. So there's something beautiful here about geography and place, even with a pretty limited slice of what geographies they're willing to consider. So. I guess my pitch is this: If you need an Easter Monday lying on the couch Netflix binge, and you're open to a bit of hate watching, you could do worse than the world's most extraordinary homes. So that's that. that that's that's my pitch. It's a pretty half-hearted one. So I went to the Art Institute of Chicago
1: once, and they had this um, this exhibit by Cy Twombly, who's one of the great American 20th century artists who I who I quite love. He's an abstract artist. And they had these huge paintings and they were called the Salala paintings and they're like most of Twombly's work very abstract it's like big vibrant green with this white splotches all over it and I went to this I went to the Art institute um, after having just come home from um, Oman and having gone to Salala and been in that uh, in that landscape and then I started looking at these paintings and I thought Oh my gosh he got it right and it was one of those moments where i realized that that landscape is more than just like a, the geography but there is something bigger yeah and um and to and to see when something captures the landscape in a way that is a not just a sort of realistic depiction of that landscape but is capturing something deep about what it's like to experience that landscape. It's something, I mean, truly beautiful. Yeah, And and I think you can do it in architecture as well as like abstract art. And, and the question that I've always had is, can you do it in, in preaching where you're not just describing the landscape, but something about your preaching is indicative of that landscape?
0: Yeah, and something about your, your ministry broadly too. I mean, what is it for a congregation to be indicative of and emblematic of and representative of its, its geographic context and its place, not necessarily so that it is camouflaged or blends in, but so that it is honest and faithful as a statement about here's where we are. And there's something, there's something in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's well said, Matt. So that about wraps it up for this episode. If you'd like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at our website at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends, The Christian Century, and also to Garrett Moskowski. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.